loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Malcolm Stern. Malcolm's worked as a group and individual psychotherapist for more than 30 years. He's a co-founder of Alternatives at St. Jane's London and runs groups internationally. His approach involves finding where the heart is and helping individuals access their truth. In his groups, he creates an environment of trust, integrity, and community, where participants can become skilled in relationships and communication. The ultimate learning is to slay your dragons with compassion, which is the the title of his recent book. Malcolm co-presented the Channel 4 series on relationships made for each other in 2003 and 2004. His new book was inspired by the suicide of his daughter, Melissa, and he describes describes 10 practices for thriving in an unstable world, all distilled from his 30 years of intense group work and his learnings from her death. The book's filled with practical exercises, which are combined with real and compelling stories from the therapy room. Welcome, Malcolm. Thank you, Cheryl. Nice to meet you again. Yes, very nice to spend some time with you. Uh, You know, one thing that interested me very much about your work is that, and this is true of me too, you were already engaged in self-reflective practices and work before the death of your daughter. And, uh, And so that most profound event um it wasn't the beginning of your exploration of of life but was a turning point and i would say that's true of my wife's death my first wife's death as well uh and i wonder if if you put those in a continuous order you know i want to talk about melissa and her death which which certainly was a huge event in your life do you looking back see the things that prepared you for handling that um, it's not so much that. It's it's actually looking at when she died that I realised I had resources and that, that actually I, what I was then sort of led to do really was just to actually clarify what those resources were and to try and create an instruction manual so the people who are in the same position would be able to sort of go, ah, yeah, this is what I need to do to sort of to be able to manage this scenario better. And, and in fact, what I also didn't realise at the time I was writing is I was also writing an instruction manual for myself that actually these are the practices, which because you know, I believe that life is, is all about practices and, and actually the more we strengthen our muscles, um, especially our emotional and spiritual muscles, the stronger those practices become. So these aren't, you know, sort of esoteric, uh, deeply academic practices. These are simple practices to be able to help you manage in difficult times and that's very valid for these times absolutely which since people listen to these shows for years after they're they're recorded i should say that we are experiencing a world pandemic pandemic at the moment where everyone is 
has unique challenges to face in living their lives right now. Yes. Uh, but let's talk specifically, you know, that's a notable statement that you realized you had uh, practices and skills to bring to bear when Melissa died, because I would, I would say losing a child, first of all, having sat with people uh, in my practice and on this show, uh, losing a child is one of the very hardest losses to process in some way. And then there are particular things about Melissa's death that would make that loss also especially hard. So it's notable that you realized you had some things to bring to bear there. Could you talk about Melissa and her her life and her death a bit? Yes, Melissa was a really beautiful, sort of wise young woman. Um, and her mother and I split up when she was 10 months old, so we, we never really lived together. But there was something about her that was really, um, people were drawn to her. She wore very bright colours, beautiful, bright lipsticks. And, um, and she worked for Kids Company, which was an organisation that looked after the most damaged children in our society. So she was right in the thick of, of caring and worked, you know, tirelessly at that. But 10 years before she took her life, she'd had a serious mental breakdown. And she rang me one day from um, on a phone and just said, uh, hello, Dad, I'm in a lunatic asylum. And I said, very funny, Melissa. And she handed the phone to the nurse. And she basically sort of like um, t- taken all her clothes off and run naked through the streets, which she later told me felt like the ultimate liberation. And, uh, and they sort of, you know, they put her in an intensive care psychiatric unit. And she spent about a year going from there to a, a, a you know, much lesser intensive one. And we thought she'd fully recovered, that actually after that year, she got back into the groove and she married. In 2013, she married a really lovely man called Ian. And, um, you know, at her wedding, she was full of zest and life and love. And, uh, and then about six months after that, she went into a, a bit of a hyper state. So um, the, the, the sort of like bi- the bipolar image she went into the high and then um and then for the last six weeks of her life which i saw a little of her during that time um she was apparently really low and was looking very somber no longer wearing bright clothes and went into a terrible depression and from that place she actually sort of um she she stayed we went to stay with her mother um who was not my not my ex-wife her mother was uh, uh she melissa was the result of an earlier uh, relationship and um and then she walked down to the bridge, apparently near near, near my ex-wife's place, during her, her mother's place. And uh, she toppled off the bridge, apparently, according to witnesses. It was about 200 feet up from the bridge and mm-hmm. died. You know, one thing that stood out as I was reading about her and, and her death is um, you said that she had, had told you that the place where she was which we would hope was a healing place, but sounds like it wasn't when she had the first break, she would never want to go back there. And I'm thinking about clients I've had, one in particular uh, who was schizophrenic, had such a traumatic experience in the hospital. And um, although she had stopped working with me by the time she died, I, I feel that not having resources that feel safe and supportive um, really does lead in that direction sometimes of, um, you know, just feeling like you have no alternatives but to check out. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think she was she was terribly abused by the system. Um, and um, this intensive care psychiatric unit that she was in 10 years previously was a very, very tough place. I remember seeing her being held down by um, two burly sort of felt like guards, I was going to say, but they were probably nurses. But um, um, as she, she tried to leave with me when I left and um, she said that her spirit was good. She, she actually survived that, but she swore she'd never go back to that again. And so when she was suffering the second time around, she wouldn't touch medication, which in this instance might have helped, but she wouldn't touch medication and she was wary of any help that she might get. And uh, she spun out on her own. But I think it was the, the, the reaction to the initial treatment. So that, I would imagine, this is just my imagining, that would particularly lead you in the direction of wanting to create really strong alternatives for people who are struggling in some way. Well, uh, I've a, yeah, I've got involved with an organization called Compassionate Mental Health who are in the UK. And um, we, we, we put on these gatherings where we, before the pandemic, we were putting on these gatherings where people would come for three or four days. And there would be a mixture of people who are in the caring professions and people who were, were um, labelled in some way schizophrenic or bipolar or any other. And we had a rule with no labels. And the, the community would, would be together for these three or four days and there would be such an atmosphere of love that it, it felt incredibly healing. And the people who were involved in that, in those conferences, those gatherings, felt like they'd created family and community. And for me, that one of the, the chapters in my book is about creating a sangha, which is a Buddhist term for creating a like-minded community. We absolutely need, in these tough times, we absolutely need people of like mind to be able to hang out with, to be able to really um, um, find our way through the thickets that we are involved in, in navigating through and to know that we've got some, someone's got our back and that we've got community that's been built. It makes me think of a community I was a part of for a long time um, that was a, um, a, a ceremonial community, a spiritual community uh, run by a Lakota woman. And um, there were, there is a, there's a tradition in that uh, way of being around uh, people who in, in our regular everyday life might be considered mentally ill in some way but they're the honored ones in that tradition. And what I noticed over time, you know, they're the leaders. They're the ones that are connected to some reality beyond this one in a way. (laughs) What I noticed is that they were so strong and beautiful during the two weeks of the ceremony and their lives the rest of the time were full of struggle. Yes. And, and And I wonder if perhaps... This is what you're talking about, that being labeled, you know, there were many things that that everyday, you know, life would label in them. But yeah. in this one context, it was their greatest gift, right? And uh, it, it really taught me about that non-labeling thing that you're mentioning. Yes. I, I think there's, a you know, a, a, again, another one of the chapters in my book is, I'm not trying to find the book particularly, but I'm just thinking about, the resources it's called breaking the spell the problem is when you get labeled something then you take it on 
So, for example, if a doctor says to you, well, you've got six months to live, some part of you is preparing the countdown for dying within six months. And it's the same way as when you're told you've got schizophrenia. Some part of you is going, ah, now I understand. And that's how it is. <laughs> I'm thinking about, I'm blanking the name of the movie right now, but about the uh, Chinese woman who the family doesn't tell her and she's still alive now. And I, I guess she got a six month uh, prognostication 10 years ago or something. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't think that's exactly how it works, having watched people with cancer for a long time, but it is yeah. interesting um, in terms of the internal experience, right? That's could right. you, because you mentioned creating a sangha, uh, I wonder if you could share um, the the excerpt from your book about that, because I think that might illuminate both the book and also your your thoughts on what's important about that. Well, interestingly, I think, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist master, puts this beautifully. And that's the piece that I've, I've sort of um, written, written in my book. And he said, in, this is in, in his book, Friends on the Path, Living Spiritual Communities. Sangha is more than a community. It's a deep spiritual practice. A sangha is a community of friends practicing the Dharma together in order to bring about and contain awareness. The essence of a sangha is awareness, understanding, acceptance, harmony, and love. When you do not see this in a community, it is not a true sangha, and you should have the courage to say so. But when you find these elements are present in a community, you know that you have the happiness and fortune of being in a real sangha. I was mentioning to you before we went on air how much that made me think of this uh, group I was a part of uh, for 25-ish years, um, because that was the heart of it. Um, when When we reacted to something in the other person, it was... Uh, truly work on ourselves to figure out what we were reacting to, not to make it about them. And that is so valuable as uh, a general practice, if we can manage it, (laughs) it's sometimes harder, you know, with people you live with, et cetera. But that idea that having a space with people that come to you curiously about themselves and about you and uh, do their best to love you, unconditionally which to me means without judgment um uh so precious isn't it it is so precious and and, uh, you know we we have to create our own sanghas so i've been part of a men's group for well i've been part of men's groups for the last 30 years but i'm a men's there's a men's group that i run now which is 10 men who meet once fortnights for two and a half hours and that is there is such a rich place of love because we're practicing authenticity, we're practicing not getting caught up in labeling other people, in really talking from a deep place inside ourselves, really learning to listen to the others. And I can see the essence of Sangha is absolutely alive there. And some of those people have become best friends because there's just a real trust that gets created when you've made a practice of living with integrity. Absolutely. Uh, And of course, I had a very different loss experience than you in, in the fact that my first wife was sick for 10 years and she was a very community-minded person. And so she sort of uh, 
initiated what we could call a sangha uh, of people who were there in support of us. That's one of the very most precious experiences of my life to be uh, held in that way. Yeah. In the in the moments of most need, um, it's an amazing experience to feel that loved and cared for. Yes. Yes. And what do you think? Because you are a, a group leader, and I know that that uh, you know sometimes leads because it does for me sometimes to ha- having a more difficult time having places where someone else is in charge. Um, did you feel like you already had a community of people to hold you up when Melissa died? Absolutely. And the interesting thing is, it's not that you have a community necessarily, but that you recognize who your real community is. Mm, There were some people with whom I became much closer because I, because not that I needed to talk about Melissa all the time, but I was able to be with those people and I didn't have to hide. Um, Stephen Levine talks about when, when someone's dying, they become highly attuned to who can be with them in their dying state. So the, if the doctor comes in very official and professional, they'll say, he'll say, how are you? They'll say, fine, thank you. But it might be that the orderly, you know, that the cleaner comes into the room and they sense that they can be with them and they'll have real, real dialogue with them. So I think when we're, when we're up against the wall, we start to recognize where our true sanger is because we can't put up with bullshit. <laughs> Yes, the bullshit meter does go very high, doesn't it? <laughs> it does indeed. Yeah, yeah. We and so it took years before we knew that that's what was happening when we reacted to somebody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, yes. but it got clear. It got clear over time. It's yeah. time for our first break, Malcolm, and we'll come back and talk about that more after the break. Listeners, you'll find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And you can find Malcolm Stern at malcolmstern.com. Be back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com dot com slash good grief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. You 
are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Malcolm Stern, the author of Slay Your Dragons with Compassion. I love that title, Malcolm, by the way, uh, because it it reminded me, I spent a lot of time with Stephen Levine uh, for over many years when my wife was sick, and it reminded me, put me back in the room with him when he would be talking about taking tea with the demons uh, <laughs> you know, uh, inviting them in, asking them to have a seat, seeing what they had to say, giving them some tea, <laughs> you know, this kind of curious demeanor towards what we, we uh, pull away from. And uh, so that, that title reminded me very much of hearing that story over and over because his stories were like mantras, you know, <laughs> They yeah. definitely got repeated. <laughs> yes, yes. How how did you think about slay your dragons with compassion? Well, it's a phrase that I've used for a long time in groups. And um, I once listened to a record, record by a band called Gentlemen Without Weapons. And there's a song called Transmissions. And one of the lines in it, there's children chanting along, slay your dragons with compassion. I must have listened to that 20 years ago. And I thought, that's a really nice terminology. I wonder what that means. And it started to become an an interest to me about that particular line. And then I started looking at people in the groups, sometimes being clumsy in challenging each other and sometimes being unskillful in all sorts of other ways. And I realized that it's not just about um, saying nice things. It's about being authentic, but being authentic in a way that other people are able to hear. So what happened... um, is that I started saying, now, listen, what we've got to start doing is slay your dragons with compassion. So I've been using that for the last 12 years or so as a phrase. And then when it came to writing the book, it just felt like that was the most important practice that I was teaching. And um, it's interesting because the publishers originally didn't like that title um, and they didn't like my subtitle either. So my editor said, can we meet for tea? And um, I'd like to, to, to we've, we've had a meeting and I'd like to talk to you about the title and the subtitle. And I said to him, uh, he said to me, well, the subtitle, which was originally 10 Ways to Thrive, even uh, 10 Ways to Thrive in an Unstable World, they changed that to 10 Ways to Thrive even when it feels impossible, which feels like a probable improvement, actually. It's more personal. But then he said to me something very wise. He said, um, he said I suppose your title's not up for grabs. And I thought, <laughs> OK, you're giving me the in there. And I said, under no circumstances is it up for grabs. And so they went with the title. And actually, I've had such fantastic feedback it's original it's interesting it's evocative it's got an image there of what does that mean to slay your dragons with compassion and what it means is go all the way to what you need to do but do it in a way that the other person can receive and also look at yourself with compassion and if you have to deal with your own rubbish that's going on do it compassionately don't beat yourself up and so there are two golden rules to slaying your dragons with compassion. So I'm going slightly off the, off the, off the beam, but this is, this is quite important. And the two golden rules are 
One is to always speak your truth. And of course, you know, we, we practice that, but it's, we're not going to be 100% on that. But that's the aim is to speak your truth. But the second rule is never hurt another more than is necessary. <laughs> that's what I find really interesting, that actually, if we really um, have difficulty with someone, don't deliberately try to be spiteful to them. Have it out and say what needs to be said, but do it in a way that leaves them some dignity so that actually you can engage in a meaningful dialogue. There are two things that come to mind. The first is that I I realize as we're speaking that part of what I liked about the title is that dragons are mythical. Yes. (laughs) So there's there's a sense that you've brought the mythic into the everyday, which I like a lot. Uh, and then the other thing is, um, you know, I've I've encountered a lot of brutal people in my life. Um, most people have. <laughs> and yeah. um, they'll often say, well, I'm just telling the truth. Yeah, exactly. And and what I realized over time is that actually isn't the truth. That's the reaction. <clears throat> and and um, uh, for me, anyway, maybe this is because I tend to be a reflective person. It often takes me a little time to figure out what the actual truth is. And then if I know what it is, I can deliver it with some compassion. But if I'm just um, reacting to something, it's actually not usually true. <laughs> so, that's right. And that's, the ultimate truth is quite rare. You know, it's like you, you might be speaking your truth, but your truth filtered through all your own experiences and all your own prejudices. But isn't that a key in a way? Uh, I'm thinking about times when someone has spoken truth to me that might be difficult for me because it requires something of me, but it's non-judgmental. It's they're telling me about them because it's their truth in that moment. And you can really feel the ring of that. Can't you? Oh, definitely. I mean, I remember I had a girlfriend many, many, many years ago who um, used to accuse me of being selfish. Now we're all selfish in certain ways. But the interesting thing is, I remember someone saying to me after that we were no longer going out together, do you know, she was the most selfish person I ever met. And then we project our own rubbish onto somebody else and say, you're this. By the way, the, the, one of the things we practice in groups is not to use pejoratives. So not to actually label something as someone as something, because that then makes it very difficult to break free of that packaging that you've put them in. Mm-hmm. It's such a challenging time for that, at least where I live, uh, to to come at brutality with compassion. Some people are not trying at all, which I understand. Um, some people are in reaction, which I understand. But if I go completely there, I feel as if I'm letting too too much of myself go. Um, <laughs> so yeah. I've been working incredibly hard at trying to find find compassion to things i'm reacting to um this, it's a very delicate practice cheryl because actually there's there's something i call idiot compassion where we try and be compassionate to everything and sometimes things really need challenging and not being allowed to continue on yes however i have find that found that when i put put a stop to something compassionately yes um it it actually stops a lot more likely than if I do it reactively. Exactly. <laughs> I could I could name examples, but I think I'll refrain. <laughs> that's probably wise, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's could you, very good. you know, 
in a way, we're talking about the ricochet effect, which is one of your 10 principles. And I wonder if you'd share a bit from the book about that, you know, the way in which we spur things off in each other, and that that is absolutely potentially a way to grow. I I love that. Uh, I've experienced that, and I I love the phrase for it. Can you share something about that? Yes. Um, Do you want me to read something from the book? That would be wonderful. Okay. In decades of group practice, I've observed a remarkable recurring phenomenon. One person shares a profound emotional expression. It could be a painful memory, a deep desire, or a shameful recollection. And this kicks off a surprisingly, seemingly random, but equally powerful emotional expression in someone else. I call it the ricochet effect. The ricochet blasts open a locked door inside us, revealing some younger part of ourselves that's been starved of food and air and left to rot. It's an unexpected reverberation that we might not wish to remember, face, or be re-traumatized by. Penetrated by it, we feel fear, self-loathing, and a wish to be rid of this troublesome intensity. We might think we are listening with detached and well-meaning sympathy, but we are slapped abruptly with fervent, uncomfortable recognition. Our conscious idea of ourself is one thing, yet underneath, many, many aspects of our personality exist in silence, hidden from view. This is especially true today when our frenzied lifestyle prevents meaningful introspection. It is only when overtaken by catastrophe or disintegration that we are forced to see the larger picture of who we are. In the group process, if we respond to ricochets with openness and empathy, if we allow our fervent feelings to be explored, remembered, and dare I say loved, we we reintegrate the estranged pain in our conscious whole. This movement to integration increases our capacity for all kinds of relationship and forms the foundation of our well-being. This thought is what came to my mind as you were reading. Uh, A few days from the time of this airing, uh, will be 25 years since my wife died. Wow. And uh, which seems really momentous to me. Uh, I, I know it because of the age of my children and because of how long I've been remarried. <laughs> but uh, it seems actually unbelievable in some, on some level. Yes. But what I, what I notice is that I, that loss continues to evolve for me. In fact, I don't always even talk about it as a loss. I, I talk about it as an experience. Yes. And um, so every week when I talk to someone about their grief, uh, I am ricocheting off of them. Yes. To a greater or lesser degree, this experience grows my grief, Yes. as it were. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. Exactly, because what I'm saying, it also matures your grief. It takes it to a deeper dimension. That's what that's what I mean by grow. Actually, I don't oh, mean it right. makes it bigger or or less uh-huh. uh, yes, that's yes. possible to handle. Not at all. I, I'm I'm really used to it. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, just, well, it's just a part of me. But yeah. but it does evolve my perspective on that part of my life. Yes, and therefore on my life. Uh, you know, this, uh, I have the idea that, that grief is an evolution over time. Well, I have that experience and I find it in other people, what you're 
where you are with a, a big loss 25 years later is not the same as when it happens or a year later or five years. They're all different places to be. Well, that's really interesting, you know, because that, that's a really um, important statement that you just made. And um, when Melissa died, of course, my whole family and my, my, my daughter and my son, who are her half-brother and sister, um, were really, um, we were all blown away and we, and we worked together on it. But my, my sister, Beverly, is, um, is in a care home and uh, is, has, has had quite a fragile mental health ever since she was 18 years old when she was she was starring in the Broadway in the in the London version of the sound of music um she was Brigitte in you know on the London stage and she had a breakdown and never really recovered from it and she's now mm. in her late 60s but actually um one of the things that happened with with Beverly is that we didn't tell her that Melissa had died we didn't know if she could handle it and when my mother's funeral came around um I said something quite carefully about Melissa during, during the, the funeral, funeral eulogy. And Beverly turned around and said, is Melissa dead? And I thought, I can't lie to her any longer. And I said, yes. And, but then the grief was utterly fresh for her, whereas mm-hmm. it was five years old for all of us. Oh, oh. So there's a difference in that, in that um, capacity. And then, of course, we could then talk about it. And then, you know, the next time I saw it, she said, but did Melissa really die? And then I was really able to open up and, and, you know, try and help her catch up with the rest of us who were five years on into the grieving process. And you're 25 years on into the grieving process. So you'll have a whole different perspective as well. That also brings something up uh, in my mind, which is that um, my uh, oldest child's uh, birth father, um, I was already out as a lesbian when I had her, but she had a relationship with her birth father. And he died when she was 11. And in a desire to protect her, um, we went home from the hospital. And the next morning, he had died. And that was so difficult for her that when my wife was dying, uh, she was then 14, uh, I said, you can be a part of everything. Everything you want to be a part of, you can. And she wanted to be a part of everything, <laughs> you know, um, we slept in the room with her body. We, you know, the whole, we went to the uh, crematorium and watched her body burn. I would say that she has much fewer leftovers from that. The protection I thought she needed, she did not need. Very good. See, this is uh, really important stuff for people to hear. Yeah, I, I've never talked about that on the show before, but it came so brightly into my mind as you were speaking about that, that in fact, me trusting that she could handle it was much more helpful. Yes. And it changed, her sister was two and a half when my wife died, and we included her in everything, just naturally, yes. Yes. because we'd learned our lesson, <laughs> you know? Right. Yes. Yeah, and sh- and they don't have... As far as I'm aware, neither of them have disturbing or traumatic uh, leftovers from that. There's the loss, you know, that this really important person died. Sure, that has an impact, but nothing from being included in all of it. That seems to have been an advantage. Yes. I think that's true. I think if we treat our children with respect, we, we... 
modify the language to the point which they can understand. That's a skill. And if we try to protect them from pain, all we end up doing is to, is to, is to create ourselves as people who withhold from them. And I, I know that my mother, in, you know, in her very best way, tried to protect me from pain and pain and would never actually, I never was able to trust that what she was saying was true. She used to call it white lies. But that's really tough to be around that. So I think there's something very noble about saying, this has happened. I'm here for you to talk to or whatever it is, but you do what you need to do to let someone experience what it is they're experiencing and not to have to hide it away. Just a very quick example. I had a, a woman in one of my groups whose brother um, was in a terrible car accident and his, he was uh, decapitated and um, he, was, he was 16 years old and he was never spoken of again in their house. And she spent all these years in therapy because that was so painful for her to have to cut him out of her consciousness. I really want to talk about this a little bit longer and it's time for a break. Um, I've never, but I want to say briefly before we go that I've never had that I can think of someone come to therapy to deal with a childhood loss and say, we talked about them all the time. They were part of our life. What I've had is people come and say, nobody ever talked about them again. <laughs> so just as an example, Listeners, it's time for our second break. You can go to my website at weatheringgrief.com. And I do want to mention that there's a link on my homepage at Voice America uh, that connects you to BetterHelp. So if you're looking for an online therapy um, possibility, uh, I've fully researched them and I, I like the service that they offer quite a bit and it's accessible all over the world. And it's online, which is helpful in this time of COVID. So go ahead and click the link and, and that will uh, bring you to a page to sign up and give you a discount and all of that. And to find Malcolm, go to malcolmstern.com. Back after the break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more... Follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Can grief be good for you? Absolutely. It gets your attention, helping you evaluate your choices and relationships. Your losses define who you are. Tune in each week for Good Grief with host Cheryl Jones. Our show features those who have made incredible transformations by grieving their losses. You'll learn how to find your courage and strength. You'll discover the important things in your life and how to let go of things that are less important. Good Grief airs live Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and Wellness. You are 
are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I'm talking today with Malcolm Stern, the author of Slay Your Dragons with Compassion. And Malcolm, I just wanted to start by this segment by sharing with the listeners these um, principles that you talk about in your book, because I think they are, they resonated with me. They're a helpful way to kind of organize what, you know, what healing um, practices might look like. Of course, they're very unique and individual, but I think these are very good signposts. Uh, and I just wanted to to list them all. Uh, follow your radar, bear witness, slay your dragons with compassion, let your relationships educate you, the ricochet effect, take ownership of your own projections, allow your suffering to transform you, create a sangha, find your purpose, um, break the spell and befriend death. Uh, which, of course, the final one is a, a place where I live a lot, but I love the other ones too. So, wh- uh, what might you say about these principles, including how they helped you to navigate what everyone would agree is a, a pretty devastating loss? Yes. Um, First of all, I'd say they're simple. And, you know, this is not a sort of a um, a way of trying to sort of create arcane you know, struggle with, with principles. It's to look at what we can practice in an everyday way. And that's what really helped me. So follow your radar. We have a, um, a mind that often wants to work things out, label it, come to some logical conclusion. And we can drive ourselves nuts with that. But if we can tune in, There's a still small voice inside every single one of us that's wise. That's what I'm calling the radar. It's instinct. It's a sixth sense. It's the the something in you that recognizes what the wise path might look like and how we can prepare ourselves to, um, to follow that wise path. And one of the things I do at the end of that chapter is to give us some short exercises on meditation because that's one of the ways of slowing down and tuning into our radar. Um, the second uh, practice is is bear witness. We so rarely wisely bear witness to each other. So in my groups, we are in a practice of bearing witness. When someone's in the middle of the circle doing some work, I'll often look around the circle and say to the people who are out there, give this your attention, be present. And there's something about really creating a container into which truth can be spoken. So if you're sitting in a circle and there's 12 other people sitting in that circle and they're listening to you, really giving you their full attention and care, you'll find that it's much easier to drop down below the normal story and to find yourself able to share stuff that you didn't even know was going on for you. And then equally, that has a a rebound effect on the other people in the circle because they then feel touched by the depth that you're able to to navigate to. Then there's Slay Your Dragons with Compassion, which is the the, the title 
chapter of the book, which is really about um, daring to speak your truth, but daring to speak it in a way that will not do deliberate harm, that will ennoble the person with whom you're struggling or ennoble you in your struggle with yourself, daring to face up to what is and dealing with it in a way that is, is, is skillful and wise. And these are all practices. So this is something that needs to be explored again and again. Um, let your relationships educate you. Well, there's no better uh, educator than a relationship. So I used to study with Ramdas, who's a great, uh, a great teacher, and uh, he recently died. And um, Ramdas um, used to say, if I start to believe what people say about me, i.e. that I'm enlightened, that I'm a beautiful being, that I'm so wise, he said, all I need to do is get into a relationship for six months. <laughs> so true. Happens, it's so true. <laughs> you can't hide in a relationship. You know, my daughter's recently got into a relationship and it was like, it was so, you know, you know, beautiful for a while. And then after then the stuff starts to come up and then the practice is with the stuff. Because one of the things, the reason I've split this chapter into two is the first part is falling in love. Now, any imbecile can fall in love. Um, you know, we meet someone, we project onto them and we, and we found ourselves that we've fallen in love. But actually the practice really begins when the falling in love starts to fade and the practice of loving begins. And in being in a relationship, do you dare to speak, to say who you are? Can you give space to your partner? Can you be with them when they're angry without running away? Can you be with them when they're sad and, and hold a clear and clean, compassionate space for them? These are the practices of relationships. And I think relationships are the greatest educator that we have in the West. You know, I think in the East, you've got a lot of the mystic, mystic practices but I think our Western mystic practice is the practice of relationships. Um, then there's the ricochet effect. And, you know, we talked about that a bit before, but it's like the ricochet effect will get us. We may think that we've forgotten all about this thing that happened to us. And suddenly someone's dealing with something that plugs us straight into something that's just been buried deep within us. And, you know, if we're wise, we'll, we'll, we'll use that to allow that part of us to come back to the surface because often we lock away the parts of ourselves we don't like very much. And, um, and, and then we forget they exist. It's often what I see as the wounded child. Um, and I've often heard people in groups say they hate the, the child part of themselves. And actually, while they're doing that, they're missing out on some of the real beauty inside themselves. So there's something about befriending the parts of yourself that you've, you've ignored. Um, allow your suffering to transform you. Well, I'm afraid that's very personal. Um, but is this also very real for us? Because I was just thinking yesterday of this phrase, into every life some rain will fall. All of us suffer. It's not possible to get through this life without suffering. Mm -hmm. We may look like we've got a really great front on it, but actually the reality is we are in a place where we, we are working with suffering. And if we're wise, we'll let the suffering really touch us and, and allow it to penetrate us and find the resources with which to deal with it. So the suffering where you put on a stiff upper lip is not what I consider healthy suffering. The suffering where you reach out to people, where you become vulnerable, where you're willing to share what's really going on with you, when you're in an environment that can receive that, that's part of the process of, of letting your suffering educate, transform you. And I know that for me with Melissa's death, that my suffering has been something that, first of all, initiated this, this book. Um, this is one of the ways in which the suffering educated me is the book came through. And if I'm to get into a slightly mystic bent, and I'm not particularly mystically minded, 
I would say that I felt Melissa behind me when I was writing the book. I felt like the book <laughs> came through. It came through in a way that nothing I've ever written before has come through. I felt like it was just sitting there waiting to be born and it poured out of me. And in seven months I had the book written, which was unheard of for my writing style. Um, um, and that's not because the book was shallow either. Um, no, I can, I can attest to that. <laughs> Thank you very much, Cheryl. Right. <laughs> then you've got um, creating the Sangha, which is such an important, you know, for me, possibly one of the most important practices and one that I really had to draw on when I lost Melissa. So um, creating a Sangha, it means having a community of like-minded others. Now, when Melissa died, I was in, I was in the middle of running the end of my one-year group. So it was a, a four-day residential when I found out about it. We were two and a half days into our four-day residential. And I went to one of my friends who is, was also a member of the group who was a psychotherapist and said, David, my daughter has taken her life. Can you run this afternoon session? And he created this beautiful grief circle. First of all, he told people what had happened. Then we created a beautiful grief circle where um, he said, those who've lost a parent step into the middle. And most of the group stepped into the middle. And they stepped back again. Those who've lost a brother or sister step into the middle. Two or three people stepped into the middle. Those who've lost a big, an important friend step into the middle. Again, three or four people stepped in. Those who've lost a child step into the middle. And there was just me. Huh. And at that moment, the pain landed. And it was beautiful that the pain landed. The suffering began in that moment. Before that, I was in shock. But I was with this sanger around me. And although it was my group which I was running, and I've never done this before or since, I allowed myself to lean on the group. Um, even though I was the group leader, for me it trumped. It's a bad word, but anyway, it's a, it, it, it sort of followed through over everything else that um, that could have happened. And and the group was so compassionate with me; they were so loving, and they couldn't do enough for me. And and I felt like I was soothed and and healed in that process. Mm-hmm. And so for me, that's the, the sangha we'd created over that year gave its fruit to me for the, for the next day and a half. And uh, that group is still very close. So we're not meeting formally anymore, but the group still meets fairly regularly because it's a sangha. It's mm-hmm. a valuable place where anything can be shared and anything can be, can be offered up. Mm. Um, then there's find your purpose. And I think that um, um, for me, finding your purpose isn't necessarily about the big job we've got to do or saving the world or anything like that. And one of the stories I tell in the book is about a bus conductor who used to be on the the 27 route which I used to get to work and um and this bus conductor was full of joy and love and laughter and little old ladies would be on the bus and he'd be telling them stories and they'd be cracking up and I just saw that this man was bringing a real sense of of love and he was bringing his gift he'd found his purpose his purpose was uplifting people whatever mood he was in he was always there solicitous caring and and lovely that was a purpose um, for me, being a psychotherapist, I'm certainly living my purpose. I'm very grateful that I have something of value. But it doesn't have to be the ultimate career move. It might be that you have a purpose to be with the sick or to be with the dying. But feel what it is that's being asking to be born within you and try and activate that. Then there's breaking the spell. And we spoke a little bit about that before as well, that that we are under a lot of spells. We're given... Um, um, the, the concept that you know perhaps you're going to die in six months and 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 then you think i'm going to die in six months or perhaps you're told um of one of one of the things i've mentioned in the book is a story of a guy who was very iffy around women in the group and 
um, he finally got himself a diagnosis of ADHD. And he came to the group and said, hey, I've got ADHD. That's why all this goes on. And in some ways, he'd, he'd been spellbound by this diagnosis. And actually what he had to do was to carry on working on the place inside him where he was um, offending women in the group and had to face it head on and couldn't hide behind No the matter spell. what the reason, huh? No matter what the reason. We still have to take responsibility. You can't say, well, I've got a diagnosis, I'm all right. You know, ADHD, I can do whatever I like. And that was what he came in with. But to give him credit, over that year of the rest of the group, he really did work on himself and he really did mm -hmm. listen to what the feedback that came his way. Um, and then finally, there's befriend death. And ultimately, death is a part of life and we can't avoid death. Most of us never see a dead body. Um, we are um, sort of sickened by the idea of death. But actually, the reality is it's a part of our being and it gives life meaning as well. And there's something beautiful about befriending death. And I sometimes do meditations where you're looking at your own death that maybe in, uh, there's a, an, an app called Insight Timer and there's a, a meditation on there about facing your own death. And, um, and I do the practices sometimes of actually seeing what it would be like if I had just a few days to live. What would I want? And where's the peace in that as well? And I think mm. uh, there is something quite magical about death. We don't know where we've come from. We don't know where we're going. But actually, if we allow death to be a part of life, then we start to have a whole different experience of it. Well, I, you know, I'm on that train because um, being there when my wife died was actually an experience of ecstasy. Wow. Um, which, you know, we could talk about for another hour. Grief isn't ecstatic, but her death was ecstatic. After a lot of preparation, I had a lot of time. There's so many comments I could make on all of these things. They've they brought so many things to my mind. I do want to say to people that they can get your book at Barnes and Noble or Penguin, Penguin Random House, and I do recommend it. Um, it's it's a very good frame for this thing we're talking about uh, in terms of how we take loss and transform it what will help us to do that because that's not a given that's something we we take steps to do um the the having feelings when someone dies that's the given i think but <laughs> making something else out of it that that's that's ours to make or not yes yes i quite agree and and those feelings can be beautiful death can be beautiful I had my hand on my father's heart as it stopped beating. And I tell you, it was one of the most beautiful, precious moments of my whole life. You don't have to convince me, that's yeah, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> yes, Malcolm, I, I want to thank you so much for being here today. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I could talk for another couple of hours, but it's uh, we're done for today. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. So that's great. And thank you so again, much. You can, Again, you can find Malcolm at malcolmstern.com. Next week, I'll have Claire Willis back to talk about her new book, Opening to Grief. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.